Well, I have good news for you. I read this earlier this morning. Uh, the rocket booster from China has landed in the Indian Ocean. You don't have to stare up into the heavens anymore wondering if it's coming down in your house. Um, that's the thing, right? When you, it, it's hard not knowing the future and the uncertainty that that sort of spins up. And so you hear news that there's this thing floating up above you literally, and, and orbiting the earth at just incredible speeds, and uh, no one can tell you when and where and how it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard not knowing. It's hard not knowing the future. Uh, uncertainty has a way of breeding anxiety, right? Uh, and I think we could, we could say yay and amen to that, and we're, you know, just the everyday and the normal, not talking about things up in orbit coming crashing down. The uncertainty has a way of spinning up and breeding uh, anxiety. Now, I suppose, you know, one solution could be we could all rush out to Target or a local toy store and crash the aisles and find the magic eight ball. Uh, that would be one solution, uh, you may be familiar with that little novelty item, right? It was, I, I read about this this past week, it was invented in 1950 and is still very much around today. In fact, just a few years ago, there was a technical innovation to take care of the bubbles inside the thing, if you can believe that. Technical innovation for the magical eight ball, that's right. Um, and uh, with this thing, with this wonderful object that looks so much like a cue, not a cue ball, but a ball off of a billiard table, and it has the little window in there, and you look in there and you say, oh, thou great magic eight ball, what or why or how, and you can ask any question you want. You can ask any question you want of the magic eight ball, and it'll give you 20 different answers. Or, or one, excuse me, one of 20, not 20 at the same time, one of 20 different answers depending on, you know, the, the little dye floating in the blue goo inside and how it pops up there in, in the window. We're pretty desperate. We're pretty desperate for uh, certainty in the midst of uncertainty. Uh, all kidding aside, we have a lot better answer in terms of dealing with the uncertainty that breeds anxiety. We have something much surer and much more certain, and it's the words of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus gives assurance to His church as to what awaits her. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to doubt. We don't need to have any seminars on this question, we know exactly what Jesus has said in terms of what awaits His church, if we'll just listen to Him pray. And you say, what? How do we? Well, we, act, we have a record of that, of Jesus praying. John 17, this is the third of three we're looking at here, just dividing it up in, in three major sections as we're moving through here. So, if you, um, if you have been with us the last couple of times, uh, you know that there in verses 1 through 5 is, you could basically say in John 17, verses 1 through 5 is basically Jesus on the night before He is betrayed, He is praying to His Father for Himself in many regards. Um, just putting it that way, He's praying for Himself there in verses 1 through 5. The Son praying to the Father in that climactic, dramatic moment. And then there, as you keep reading in verses 6 through 19, uh, he is praying, I'll say especially, not exclusively, but especially for 
the, the disciples, the 12 minus Judas, so the 11. And then a shift comes in verse 20 where he's praying for another group of people, for us, for us. So if you've ever wondered what the heart of Jesus is for us as people, if you've ever wondered, you need wonder no more. It's right here, John 17, verses 20 through 26. Hear now God's Word. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this holy privilege of listening to you pray. You have shown us, uh, you have taught us when the disciples came and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And those words there in Matthew and Luke where uh, we call it oftentimes the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the prayer given to us by our Lord, there you take us by the hand and show us, okay, this is how you walk the path. And um, we are so thankful. But not only have you taught us, but here we, we hear you showing us. Um, and so we thank you for this astonishing, amazing moment where you're beckoning us close and saying, listen in. Um, as you pray to your Father, we ask that you would teach us to pray and how we hear you pray, but we know that you have even more in mind than that. And so we ask that you really would, as our forebearers said, dig ears. Dig ears that we might hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want you to imagine an explorer for a moment. An explorer standing up upon the highest summit that you can imagine. Uh, looking out there upon a vast Nearly, we'll just say, practically endless range. So let's think of Mount Everest for a moment, okay? You're, you're envisioning this explorer. Maybe it's you. You're, you're envisioning you are the explorer on Mount Everest. So let me give you a little history of Mount Everest expeditions, okay? So between 1920 and 1952, there were seven major expeditions that attempted to reach the summit 
of Mount Everest. Uh, none of them did it. In 1924, the famous mountaineer, uh, George Lay Mallory, perished in the attempt. In 1952, a Swiss team uh, got all the way up to the, the South Peak but had to stop just a 1,000 feet, just a 1,000 feet short of, of the summit. And then 1953 brought an expedition that brought two different groups of explorers uh, together, one from the committee, excuse me, the Joint Himalayan Committee of the Alpine Club of Great Britain. Put that on a patch, right? And that, that was one group. And then the other that worked together uh, in conjunction there was the Royal Geographic Society. Now, they reached, in 1953, they reached that South Peak in May, but there again, all but two members of the team had to turn back because of fatigue from the, because of the, the high altitude, the thin air, and all that. I say all but two. All but two. A guy by the name of Edmund Hillary from New Zealand and another gentleman from Nepal whose name was Tenzing Norgay. He was a, a climber who had been a part of five previous expeditions up to or trying to get up to the top of Mount Everest. Well, they made it. They made the assault all the way up to the, to, to the summit, the, the, the heights of Mount Everest, 29,028 feet above sea level on May 29th, 1953. There they stood. There they stood. Now, I just want you to imagine this. Can you just for a moment in your mind's eye take in the view? The, the picture there that is taken, that is actually Hillary took of his guide. Uh, there's no picture of Sir Edmund Hillary, actually, on Mount Everest, because he just didn't bother with it. He didn't like, and, and also the other guy didn't know how to work the camera. So between the, between the two, there's, there's, no, there's no picture. And um, can you imagine, though, the, the one the picture that we have, that I've seen at least, I mean, the blue is so, to say so blue, I don't know what else to say. It's just so blue. And it's so clear. And you can see, you know, I'm thinking peaks that for us would be like, whoa, those are really high. But you're looking down from Everest, it's just, and there's just, can I put it this way, waves of ranges that they're able to see from this, this, uh, this summit. Now, I bring this up because listening to Jesus pray at this point, and what we oftentimes call his high priestly prayer, is like Jesus the mountaineer standing upon the summit looking out upon this grand vista of range after range after range, but it's not mountains, it's history. Now, the difference is he's not just some mountaineer who's made the climb, he's also the one who made the mountains. Now, get your head around that one, right? So, he's standing there looking out upon what he's going to do and has already decreed before the beginning of time is going to be. Well, that's what we're seeing here in John chapter 17. Now, as I said last week, uh, we were looking at a section of this prayer, kind of the middle section, the second section, that where, where Jesus is praying for the, uh, especially but not exclusively, especially but not exclusively for the 11. Here, a shift takes place when you're moving from verse 19 to verse 20, where it's pretty clear that his attention is riveted upon those who, particularly those who will believe in the gospel, in Jesus, because of the testimony of the 11. 
So you see the confidence. Now, who else would have this kind of confidence at this moment? This is crazy talk. But what he envisions is something that's going to happen because of the testimony of these 11, this range after range after range after range, that, friends, you and I are in there. You and I are in there, somewhere in that range, because we just don't know how much further it goes, right? But we're somewhere in that range as of 2021. That's where we are. And it is just astonishing to, to, to try and take in everything that he's saying here. I mean, honestly, there's probably a whole long, long sermon series just in verses 20 through 26. I mean, wh where do you start and where do you stop? In, t in terms of all that could be discussed here. And we would do really well, perhaps, to spend a lot of time discussing all that is, that is here. But we're not. This is just a, a one shot. Uh, what do we see? Listening to Jesus pray certainly does help us, aid us, guide us in our own prayers. But it does more than that. Because... As with any of us, you can hear the priority of a, of a person's heart in how they pray. So we're hearing Jesus' heart here. And what we're hearing, what it allows us to do is as we listen to Jesus pray, it broadens our view of His plans. It broadens our view of His plans. And what we come to find out is His plans are astonishingly expansive. Just astonishingly expansive in three ways. This work that He's doing between us, change that He's bringing within us, and a path that lies out there before us. So those three things. This work between, this change within, and this path that lies out there ahead or before us. So let's look at these things in turn. First, the, the work between us. You can't miss this point. The theme here, the repetition, forces the reader to recognize, okay, heavy upon Jesus' heart is this idea of unity. You can't read this and miss that. The, the repetition is so obvious. Uh, he, he has in, in mind a, a, a growing body of, of believers, as astonishing as that may have been at, at the moment. Because again, the 11, can you imagine they're listening in to, to, to this and they're thinking, what, what, us, how? Um, so he has in mind this growing body that the message is going to spread and it's going to spread and it's going to catch fire and, and go yet further. And in the course of that, many people are going to be brought into his church but that said, the further it spreads, the more differences and distinctions there will be between those people, right? The less monochrome it's going to be, the more technicolor, if I can put it that way, it's going to become. And so he's praying for its unity right at the start. He's praying for its unity right at the start, knowing what's coming, which tells us then that ultimately... Whatever our denominational distinctives may be, whatever our educational background may be, our political affiliations may be, our, our economic status may be, our language, our race, our culture, we're one. 
Whatever those things that otherwise we might say make us different, Jesus says, yeah, those are significant. Let me tell you what trumps all that. You're one. In me. In me, you are one. So he has in mind this growing body, and this is a, a present reality. This is crucial for us to understand. This is not something we create. This is something he has already accomplished, something he has already established that we are simply to live out of and walk in a, in a consistent manner in the fact that he has already made us one. Well, that's, I'll call that the fact of this unity, just some essential foundational things regarding this, this unity. Well, well, okay, where does it come from? What is its basis? What is its nature? Well, the nature of this unity is grounded in the Godhead himself, in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triunity, the, tri- the nature of the triune God, Jesus tells us that's its foundation, that's its essence. That's where it comes from. You see that here in verses 20, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that, also, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. There's mystery here, to be sure, but we'll just, let me just put it this way. Um, the, 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 the unity that he has in mind, given the fact that it is grounded in the nature of the Trinity itself, we have to then understand that this unity, its nature, its foundation, its essence has to be deep. If it's grounded in the reality of the triune God himself, it has to be deep. That which has already been accomplished, that which has already been established, it can't be shaken, which means that just as the Trinity ultimately has a common purpose, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a mutual love, a shared mission and cause, so too he's speaking of you, you, my people. That's you. If you would only know that of yourselves, that is you. That, that, is, that is you. So there's a depth to it, but at the same time, Given that it's grounded in the reality of the Trinity, there's diversity in this unity as well because we're not just talking about a strict monotheism in that there is no, there are not three, we are speaking of a God who is in three persons. Diversity within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So even as in this unity, we are not saying that we've somehow become one with God, like enmeshed in God, like now we are God and He is God and it's all God and all... No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying, this unity. But nor are we saying that in this unity that we are just absorbed into one another, like this, as my mother would say, congealed salad. <laughs> we're having the fellowship lunches again soon, perhaps somebody. Colin, can you take care of that? Where, he, where'd he go? Sorry. Um, congealed salad. Okay, so um, where are we? All right, the nature of this, uh, this unity. What effect does this have? What does he have in mind that will come about because of this unity? Well, Jesus couldn't be plainer there either. 
We see in verse 21 and in verse 23, he's praying for the unity. That's verse 20. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me, that the world may know. That's what he has in mind. So this is a supernatural unity to be sure, grounded in the reality of the triune God and enriched continually, enriched forever and ever by the wonder of the gospel message itself. And, and it stands out, this unity stands out as it is lived out in the everyday ordinary of life. This unity is a, is a supernatural thing and yet observable. It's not invisible. It, it's certainly not just something that we put on letterhead or on a website and say, oh, yeah, we're one. But no, no, this is observable in the sense of that it can be seen. It, it, it is known. It is, it is felt. It can be experienced. It is, it is, in that sense, compelling and winsome, and the world will know as the old song goes, that we are Christians by our love. Most especially for one another. Most especially for one another and how we do life together and how we walk alongside one another. When especially, not just when the times are good, but when the times are hard. This is part of Jesus' expansive plan. And it comes about through His work between us. Just astonishing. The, the, all that growth he has in mind, remember the range upon range upon range, hinges, I'm mixing the metaphors now, I'm, I went from mountain ranges to door hinges, hinges on our being one. That's the means by which he has in mind to accomplish this great goal. Think with me about the housing market in Clarksville right now. So it's a seller's market, people are, in essence, standing in line to, to, to buy homes, saying, I don't care about the, uh, the inspection, it's just, I'm like, what? Um, but such is the draw, That's what, such is the draw, such is the appeal, the longing for homes in this, in this area. Well, you know, speaking of draw, Francis Schaeffer spoke on this point, John 17, John 13, he said, love is the final apologetic. We talked about this some weeks ago. Love is the final apologetic. Or I'm going to put it this way. In our post-truth culture, you may not like it, but get over it. It's, this is where we live. This is our mission field, okay? In the 21st century West, in our post-truth culture, our friends, our contemporaries care precious little about our faith declarations. What must be present, what must be demonstrated are faith demonstrations. Not faith declarations, faith demonstrations. It has to be seen for it to be heard. And, and, and again, this is uh, most especially the case in terms of how we do life with one another. And this, of course, is such a challenge to us, such a challenge to us because we ourselves as believers 
are inhaling constantly the noxious fumes of radical individualism. So we don't really care about unity, ultimately. Not like Jesus does. Not like Jesus does. Listening to Him pray broadens our view of His plans. And that includes this work between us. I need to press. I'm taking too long on this first point. Second point, the change between us. How is this going to happen? How, Jesus, how is this work going to take place between us? Well, He speaks to that here as well. Change within us. Change within us will move towards and enable this this, uh, work between us. He speaks of this in two ways here in the text. A mutual abiding would be one. A mutual abiding would be one. You see this in several places in the prayer. It comes up as a theme. Verse 21, uh, he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You know that language of the abiding? Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Skipping down to verse 26, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is incredibly profound. He's speaking here of this spiritual union whereby we find our life in Him. It's, it's the language, the same concept that Jesus speaks of to His disciples, recorded there for us in John 15 of the vine and the branches, where we find our life, our everything, our significance, our identity, our cause, our purpose, our salvation, our understanding of truth, our life abiding in Christ. And and this spiritual union is what brings forth this personal, interpersonal unity. As we are made one with God, it then allows us to then become one with each other, and I can put it this way, the, 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 the need there was so great. Like what it would take for us to become one with each other, it tells you, whoa, the, the, the hole was so deep. It, it, it had to be met with something that would make us one with the Father, that we could become one with one another. It's pretty profound. It's, I know it's, it's a lot to take in here. It's, it's, it's like we're, we're, we're looking at the mountain vistas at this point. I can't quite take it in, but let's just keep going. It's not just the mutual abiding Jesus speaks of in terms of that which allows for this um, work between us, but also a giving of His glory. It's a really interesting way He phrases this. Uh, Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. See, you notice the, the causal effect here. I have given them glory, and as a consequence of that, they are to be one. What is, what, is he, what is he saying here? Well, we talked about this idea of glory a few weeks ago. This is the unique magnificence. This is the particular honor. This is the special splendor of a person or a thing. It's what sets them apart from everything else. Now, the glory of Jesus again and again in John's gospel, predominantly what he's speaking of there, when Jesus speaks of that in John's gospel, what he's referring to is his, is the way theologians refer to this as his, his humiliation, meaning the incarnation, God becoming man, humiliation. 
being born in the circumstances that he was, growing up in the circumstances that he did, going through the sufferings and the temptations all through his earthly ministry. And then, of course, chiefly his trial and crucifixion, his humiliation. So now what do we see? What is the glory that he has revealed of himself in this? A self-sacrificing love. That is the essence of Jesus' heart. That is his glory. That is what explodes forth from you cannot look at Jesus rightly and not see the glory of His self-sacrificing love. And He's saying, I have given this to you. I have shown this to you. And as a consequence of that, you will be one. You will be one. It's part of His expansive plan, working this, not just this this, this work between us that's coming about because of this change within us. Think about it. Think of the, the, the extent of the gratitude and the humility you have when someone has written off your debt. The gratitude and humility that you have when someone has written off your debt. Now, the degree of the, the gratitude and the degree of the humility that you will feel is based on, is proportional to the amount of the debt that's been written off, right? So, if it's just a few dollars, well, you know, whatever. If it's the national debt, well, that's a little different. And the Scriptures are pretty plain, and the imagery that's used is ours is the national debt. The great gratitude, the great humility, He has given us His glory. He has demonstrated, He has shown forth who He is in what He has done, which therein must, if we're hearing this at all, must make us lean into Him with our entire dependency, our entire selves, and yet at the same time, not just be dependent upon Him, but be humble before Him. Because we have some sense, some inkling of some sense of where we were before, and now we know where we are because of His love and mercy and grace. and only because of His love and mercy and grace. Now, you wonder, well, what does this have to do with unity, though? How, how does, again, verse 22, how, how does His showing us, giving us His glory lend itself towards unity? Well, it's not that hard. Just think with me. Think with me. As we see His glory, again, His self-sacrificing love on our behalf and all that He has done, that crushes pride. It destroys boasting. It inflames humility. And as one of my dear professors in seminary, Jerem Barr, said again and again and again, humble people tend to get along. So do you see the connection now between Jesus' having given us His glory, and the consequence of that being we are one and and now can live as one. It's really quite something. It's really quite something. Listening to Him pray. Listening to Him pray broadens, deepens, expands our view, our perspective, our understanding of His plans. 
and they are expansive and broad indeed. Let's go to the third thing, uh, not just his work between us and the change within us, but now thinking at where he's going here, this path before us, what awaits us. Uh, we'll get to verses 24 through 26 now. And uh, we, we, there's a lot here that we could say we get a foretaste of even in this life, but the ultimate fulfillment is coming in the future. Verses 24 to 26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Well, again, there's probably a sermon series just in those verses, but there's at least three things that Jesus is praying for regarding you and I, this very moment, this very moment, our great high priest praying for these things for you and for I and, and me and for us. These, at least these three things. One, that we would be with Him. That we would be with Him. This is an echo, of course, of the Emmanuel promise, right? The great Emmanuel promise. God with us. God with us. It's the language of love. Do you hear the desire of Jesus' heart for you, for us, for all of us? That's what He wants. That's what He's asking for from His Father. There, again, listen to what he's saying. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. That's what he's asking about you and me. It's the language of longing. It's the language of a husband. Well, the husband-to-be. Longing to hold his bride-to-be. It's that kind of yearning, that kind of ache in his heart that he has for the bride, which, of course, is one of the metaphors, right, that we see in the Scriptures for the church. So he longs for us to be with him. He longs for us to see his glory. Now, it's the second time you hear that language in this prayer, but here it's, a, it's used in a slightly different way. Here it's, it's not so much the emphasis is not so much on his humiliation, but rather his exaltation that we would see Him, as John says in one of his letters, as He is. That there would be no, no, nothing hidden or veiled whatsoever in, in our sight, that we would really truly see Him as He is, as, as His coming, at His return, at His second coming, when He comes to make all things right, all things new, including you and I and this whole earth, this whole cosmos, He longs for us to see His glory as, as, as uh, His disciples did, three of them, when He was transfigured. To really see Him. To really see Him. That's what awaits us. It's one more thing that we would learn from Him. I don't know another way to put that, but we would learn from Him. And He speaks of this in verse 26. So much has already been revealed to us, He says, and He has done it. I made known to them your name, meaning God's, the Father's character and His 
His glorious character and all that He's done for us and how He loves us. I made known to them Your name, and I will continue to make it known. Again, He's speaking of you and I. This is what I've done. As He's looking out across those ranges, this is almost, it's it's not yet, but it is from Jesus' perspective. It's not yet, but it is. It might as well be because I'm going to do it. I've shown them, and I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them yet more, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So much has already been revealed, and yet eternally yet more is coming. And he, he does not have in mind a seminar of just propositional truth, but he has in mind relational growth as he just continues to pour out, showing us the love of the Father, the Son, showing us this love perpetually, continually, eternally. Now, imagine, just try. This is the image that came to my mind this week. See what it does for you. Imagine the most glorious sun, the most glorious star in the heavens, and we are these little solar strips trying to take that in forever. That's our destination. That's what awaits us. Now, here's the question. Is that where your GPS is set? That's where we're going, followers of Jesus, disciples of the living God. That's where we're going, but is that where your GPS is set? Because, again, we we need to think about this. All the misguided messaging all around us all the time that says, this world is all that there is, so camp out here and, you know, get as much as you can now. Live for what you can see. And Christians are not immune to this in any way at all. Not at all. Again, we are inhaling these fumes all all the time. Think of what you pray for, right? Think of how that shapes your priorities and the, the temporal nature of so much of our prayer life. Think of the things that you insist on. Think of the things you demand upon and how fixated we are on the things of now. My desires, my demands, my rights. And think of the impact, the the infection that takes place. So we want health. We want a promising career. We want um, creature comforts. We want financial Uh, security, we want political stability, and we want it yesterday, if not now. And friends, I just just have to ask myself this, and and all of us here this morning, where in the Bible are we promised those things? Where in God's Word are we promised those things? And what other things does He tell us to fix our eyes upon, to fix our sights upon? and to put our hope in those things or Him. Again, listening. Are we listening? Listening. Listening to Jesus pray. Listening to Jesus pray broadens, deepens our view of the path before us. I know this is a lot to take in. Uh, 
I've, I don't know how many times I've read this text over the last several days, and I'm just thimble in an ocean. I'm a little miniature thimble. Not just a thimble. I mean like a plaything thimble. Being dipped in an ocean. Maybe that's how you feel too. Just so much here. But this, this is what he's praying for. This is what he's acting upon. Despite all of our assumptions, and, and I say that because so, so oftentimes I, I know that we, we just assume that, well, you know what? Because I can't see evidence that he cares about these things and he's working these things in my life and around me and in this world, because I can't see it, it must not be. Because I can't see the evidence, there must not be the evidence. That's a pretty precarious assumption to make. Let me give you just three quick pictures that might help. So imagine you're in the audience at a play and it's intermission and the curtains are closed and you're just kind of sitting there wondering because it seems like it's going on a while. And you just start to wonder, I, I, I don't know if they're really actually changing the set back behind that curtain. Maybe the cast just went home. Or you're a passenger getting on a plane. You're getting settled into your seat. And, you're, you, yeah, you've got your ticket, and it says what your destination is. And you just start to thinking because you're feeling kind of ornery. Um, yeah, I, I know it says I'm going to X, but I could be going to Y. I mean, I don't know what they're doing in that cockpit. Even they let me in, I don't know how to read those stupid dang instruments. Uh, or let's say you're a small child standing out in the hall. Standing out in the hall outside your parents' closed bedroom door, and you can hear them talking, and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder what decision they're going to come to after that big blow-up we just had and what they're going to tell me is how it's going to be and are they going to do what I asked them to do? You know, kind of in that. We just assume because we can't grasp all that's going on that nothing's going on. We just assume because it's just outside of our ability to see and foresee and get a handle on that no one does. And friends, that's just not true. Yeah, we may be like the audience and the passenger and the child, but Jesus is praying and working towards this work between us, this change within us, and this path before us. That's what He's praying for and what He's working towards now. Oh, that we could hear Him pray. Oh, that our ears could be tuned to that. Because if we hear him pray, as we listen to Jesus pray, oh, how it broadens and expands our view of his plans. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you again for the privilege of being able to listen in. And we thank you that we haven't just snuck in, really, but you've invited us. You've welcomed us in the listening. You, you were very intentional in sharing your heart and giving us an opportunity to hear you, share your heart with your Father in that moment. But really, for all moments eternity, this is your heart. This is your prayer. Ah, we, uh, indeed, we are here now in part of that range of mountains that you were looking out upon in that moment. And even now still, we are here now because of how you are praying. 
and your desire for us. We are here now this very moment. Here now we get a sense of your priorities and your plans. And Jesus, oh, would you please make them ours. And as the psalmist prays, as David prays, oh, would you search our hearts and know us. And if there be any offensive way in us, oh, would you have mercy upon us. Make us your own as we are, your disciples, your followers. Make us, make us indeed what we are. We pray in your name. Amen.